Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us in our series, Easter, The Jesus Way. Jesus is our ultimate example for how we should live our lives. In this series, we are looking at Jesus's ministry, from his calling to his victory over the grave. We are walking alongside his journey to the cross, to his death and burial, and then to his resurrection. Each week, we will be deep diving into chapters 15 through 21 of the Gospel of John, leading us all the way to celebrate Christ's victory over the grave on Easter Sunday. Now let's tune in. Nick Allen, and I'm blessed to get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, thank you, Mary Catherine, for coming and leading us in prayer this morning. Sometimes, as a pastor, it's hard um, to weave together where, where you know the scripture starts and where our crisis ends. Um, and then sometimes it's really, really, I'll just confess it to you, easy. And it's, it's not an accident, and it's certainly a help to me that we're leaning into um, the crucifixion story this week. Um, and the very reason that Christ came um, was to a broken, sinful, desperate world. It's been such a sobering week for our city. Um, and I'll just confess it to you, and maybe you're with me. I've been sad. Um, I have, in a few moments, um, more moments than the sadness and the sorrow, I've been angry um, and scared. Um, and most of all, this is the part that nobody wants to hear, I've been grateful. Um, on the selfish side of things, grateful just to have my kids home with me. Um, and it's, it's okay for us to feel that way. And then in a, a really humbling, hopefully God-honoring way, um, really, really grateful because this is a reminder that none of us are promised tomorrow. Um, so we should be grateful um, and hold close these promises and our people every day. Um, and amidst all the, the, the sorrow and the sadness and the fear and the anger and the frustration, um, I've been just sick. Because there's these messages out there in the world. It doesn't take too long for us to message the world, does it, these days? You can send a message that reaches the whole world in a matter of seconds. And you may be aware, just like I'm aware, that we're a real reactive people. Like something happens and we react to it without a second or without a thought of what's really happening. We are, we are ready and poised and the tweets are already typed and the thoughts are already formed before we've ever had a chance to really consider the implication of those words. I'll tell you that we've got a world around us 
that fully believes that words from this book and prayers on our knees are not enough. And that's on us. Because what that means is that we are continuing to walk as a people who live a life that fails to declare adequately and accurately and abundantly that these words and that our prayers are not only enough, they're they're more than enough. And not simply because the magnitude of our prayers move, we'll see it in Scripture, move the heart of God, but they also should move us to action. Like somehow these prayers do something before God and they do something inside of us. It's supposed to motivate us to act more godly and in mercy pursue the common good for all people and to protect the vulnerable even at the expense of ourselves. I've been thinking a lot about that this week and it's it's not an action. It may be a little calculated on our part that the person that we invited to come and to offer a prayer for us this morning is executive director of our mission sending agency. And I'm thankful that in 20 years of the life of Rolling Hills Community Church that we've been a church that's, that's on mission and that hasn't ever stopped Praying for vulnerable people in Moldova and Brazil and other parts of the world. But that also hasn't stopped going and addressing the needs that we've encountered in the world. Like it's, it's both. It's both there and it's supposed to be both here. Had it not been for Monday, I would have jumped right into John chapter 19, picking off where we left at John chapter 18, diving right into the crucifixion story, but I've been getting sidetracked by Jeremiah all week, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and put your little ribbon, if it has one, that's a convenient little bookmark, into John chapter 19, but we're going to get there by way of Jeremiah chapter 18 this morning, starting in verse 1, it says this, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and I could pause there and talk for 25 minutes or 25 years there because this isn't Harry Potter. And not that I'm picking on that. It's, it's, it's not Nicholas Sparks. It's not, it's not anything that you would read on the New York Times bestseller list, although the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Like It's, it's not just words on a page that are meant to to move us and to challenge us and to entertain us. Like, it's literally words from the Lord. And you could, you could, the Bible would be a lot bigger and it would be heavy and we'd have to do a workout if we were going to carry it. But you could literally take every verse of Scripture from the very start to the very end, all the way from Genesis chapter 1 to the very tail end of Revelation. And you could tag that line from Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 on it. You could say, this is the word that came from the Lord. Like, every single part of it. But we get that number in, in this particular chapter because Jeremiah is a prophet and he's preaching to people and he's reminding people and he's, he's begging of people that they would return their hearts to God. And, and God said to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. 
Like, go to this particular place, and there I'm going to talk to you. So I went down to the potter's house. This is a clay potter, by the way, because I don't know if you're thinking it's springtime and we're potting plants at our houses. You are too. It's allergic outside, by the way. But this is a potter. Like, they're doing some clay. So Jeremiah, in verse 3, I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. Oh, there's our clue. Like, it's a potter's wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred. It's just messed up in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot. Like he was working on this one pot and it was real messed up. And so he decided to form it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Like who's in charge of the moment? Not the pot, the potter. And then it says, then the word of the Lord came to me. If you continue reading in that passage of scripture, what you'll find is like God being super clear with Jeremiah. Like, hey, FYI, this pot, this piece of clay, this lump of moldy, whatever, is the nation of my people. And and I, God, is saying in the story, like God is the potter. He he speaks to him and says, like, like, Israel is just like that clay. I can shape it any way that I will. And he uses that moment to bring a word of prophecy that says, hey, nation of Judah, if you're not really careful in this moment, you're going to end up just like the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Like, they've already been taken over by the Assyrians, and the Babylonians are on their way, and that if you would somehow return to me, come under the umbrella of my care and my provision and my lordship and my leadership again, then somehow or another, I'll spare you that disaster so that you don't have to go into Babylonian exile. So God says, turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. That word ways is the word Derek. I don't know if we have anybody here this morning with that name, but it's a good, strong Hebrew word. And it's not just way as in like the path or the road that you take. It's, it's literally a metaphor for your moral character. Like the way that you conduct yourselves. The, the, the moral behavior that you exhibit in the world. Like, like, like if you turn from your evil ways and you reform your character, but also your actions. Like the stuff that's on the outside and the stuff that's on the inside. If, if that would change about you. And it says in verse 12, this is the most telling verse. I'm, sometimes I say that. I say, oh, it's the most telling verse in all of Scripture. And if I say that about 10 verses, then really none of them are the most telling verse in all of Scripture. I get that. But man, this one hits me. But they will reply. Like their response to Jeremiah when he goes to the people and he tells them about this situation that he experienced at the potter's house. He comes back and he delivers the message and they say, it's no use. It's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. We hear you. Appreciate you. God bless your ministry. Thank you. Good job, Jeremiah. But if you don't mind, we're going to get back to business as usual. We're going to do things our way. We're going to pursue our plans. We're going to go in our directions. I don't think that I have to go any further than to exhibit what's wrong with the world. And I told myself that I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to say world in this moment. I wasn't going to say, like, that's what's wrong with the whole world. Um, Although I do believe that. To be clear, I, I do think this is a broken planet and that America in general and all of we need some fixing, but, but it doesn't start there. It doesn't start with, I don't think that you have to go any further to find out that this is what is messed up and wrong with the whole world. I should have started with it. I don't think you have to go any further to find out that this right here is what's messed up with me. 
Like, it's not just the whole world. It's not just all the real sinners out there. It's me. This is what is ever present and wrong in my life on the regular. There's no better beginning point to Palm Sunday. There's no better beginning point to the week of Easter than recognizing that we are so desperate for a Savior. So last week we said in, in John chapter 18, verse 4, um, this, this is the most powerful and telling verse in all of Scripture. I'm just kidding, but it is a really powerful one. It says that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked those who would arrest him, what is it that you want? And then John chapter 19, this is what's about to happen to him. This is what he saw coming, and this is what he stepped up for. This is what he knew would happen, and this is how he volunteered. Roman crucifixion was common. Like this whole method of execution was common, but Jesus was no commoner. And you find that right out of the gate because it says in John chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate, the Roman governor, took Jesus and had him flogged. And if you're a person that likes to underline things on the page or keep a list in like the note apps on your phone, like you can go through this passage of scripture, just write down all the things that happened to Jesus and then remind yourself, John chapter 18, verse 4, he knew that it was going to happen. Like he knew that as he stepped up and said, oh yeah, I am he, I'm the one that you're looking for, that flogging was going to come. And you can Google what that is. It's the worst kind of torture and punishment that any of us could imagine. Pilate took Jesus and had him beaten and flogged. And then it says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And to be clear, other people who were being crucified had been beaten and flogged. But only Jesus got the makeshift crown. Only Jesus got clothed in purple. Only Jesus got a bunch of Roman soldiers going up to him again and again, verse 3, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and then slapping him in the face. And I, I can't get away from the image that every single other Roman prisoner who was executed may have received the same beating, but they didn't receive the same declaration. Part of this was the sport of executing somebody who wasn't just a Jewish rebel or a Jewish troublemaker, but a Jewish leader. And then when I go inside, when I Jeremiah chapter 18, potter and clay this business, I start to realize that I'm not that different from this business because some of my deeds and some of my ways... Although I call him king, some of my deeds and some of my ways are like a slap in the face. Because we are a people who, who, who often call him Lord with our mouths, but then our actions, our, our behaviors are very, very different. Like, I just want to blast the Roman soldiers in this moment because they're calling him king, but treating him like dirt. And then I think, man, sometimes that's me. You see, to believe in Jesus as Savior, to understand that he is that Hosanna, it means that we submit to him as king. 
If you continue in, in, in verse 4, it says, Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews that were gathered there, all those Jewish leaders, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. That's the superstition of it. The Romans were a polytheistic culture, and they worshipped any manner of all kinds of crazy lowercase g gods. And so his superstition in that polytheistic culture was like, well, wait a minute. If he is, in fact, a representation of one of the gods, I don't want to be the guy that puts him to death. We're not going to execute one of them, so I'm going to have to go out and figure out another circumstance here. So he goes back inside the palace, and he asks you, he's like, where do you come from? Like, I got to get to the bottom of this. Because if he is one of the gods, I certainly don't need to try to execute him. So where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. He's like, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. And he says, don't you realize that I have power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, (laughs) you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All power on this earth is God-breathed. He says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From there on, Pilate tried in this moment to set Jesus free. Like, I can't execute this guy. One, there is no charge, no formal charge that I can bring, according to the Roman law, against anything that he has said, any way that he's behaved, any action that he's taken, anything that he's done. And on the off chance that he really might be some representative form of some Roman deity that I just haven't quite named yet, I certainly don't want to be the one responsible for crucifying him. But in verse 12, the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Now Pilate's really stuck in the mess because if he carries out the execution, he runs the risk of executing somebody who might be a little g-god and he doesn't want to do that because that would be terrible. But if he doesn't, now he runs the risk of offending Caesar. He's literally caught in the middle of all of the mess. And it says in verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place that was known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. And he said this, here is your king. Okay, here he is, guys. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Then Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And then they said this, and I, we have no king but Caesar. To understand Christ as Savior is to submit to him as king. And woe be it to these Jewish leaders and to this non-Jewish guy. When I submit to the kingship of anything in this world over and above King Jesus. They said we have no king but Caesar. But what they meant was, man, 
it's no use. You can say what you want to say. We're going to continue to follow the stubbornness and the wickedness of our own evil hearts. And the challenge in this moment is that this is coming from a group of people, rallied around a group of people who had considered themselves people who were doing the work of God. The problem is they weren't doing God's work his way. They were doing God's work their way. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus looks at the people that are gathered together. And if you go towards the end of that chapter, you realize that he's about to say some really hard, uncomfortable things and a whole bunch of people are going to turn their backs on him. But he said, the work of God is this. Here's the real work of God. It's not all your sacrificial system. It's not all your rules and regulations. It's not the 613 commands that you read out of the Old Testament. And it's not the thousands that you've added to it in the intertestamental period because you want to make sure that everybody follows all of the strict rules in the way that you said. It's not that. It's this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And the reason that so many people believed was because of the miracles that he did and the teachings that he gave. It was astonishing to them. And so massive crowds began to follow Jesus. In John chapter 12, verse 37, it says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, there was still a group of people who would not believe in him. And that was to fulfill a word that came from Isaiah the prophet, that the Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. So even the reason for their wicked stubborn hearts in the moment is that God had blinded them from being able to see who he really was in the moment so that you and I could come and join the story. This whole summer we're going to go through the book of Romans. I'm so excited. There may not be another book I just say that about all of them, don't I? That answers as many questions as you and I might have. But not only the salvacious gift that we've been given from God, but also the problems that you and I encounter in this world. It says in verse 41 of John chapter 12 that Isaiah said this because he saw. Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him. These prophets, they saw, they knew what was coming, they understood why it was happening. And that says in verse 42, a verse that we ought not read about the Jewish leaders, we ought to believe about ourselves, like, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Mercy, would we believe in Jesus? Would we submit to him as king? Would we call him savior? But because of the Pharisees, this is where we get into trouble, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they, verse 43, loved human praise more than praise from God. Man, Jeremiah 18, 12, and John 12, 43. You feeling seen a little bit? So then Jesus cried out in John 12, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. It's by faith that we're saved. By faith alone, belief in in who Jesus is, who sent him, and and why he came. Jesus didn't just hang on a cross to 
take on our sin, he also took on our shame. All of that stuff that is about us, that cares about the praise and the safety and the sanctity of all the people around us, but that forgets that there's sin that literally separates us from God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, the cross that he knew was coming. Knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he stepped up. He endured the cross and scorned the shame. Forget that. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we won't grow weary and so that we won't lose heart. He endured the shame of a very public and a very painful criminal's death. And that was the only equivalent to that of my stubborn, wicked ways and deeds. Died a criminal's death so that scripture would be fulfilled and so that people would be saved, so that lives would be spared. Those of us who stubbornly shake our fist and we determine to go our own way, those of us who, who call him king and savior on Sunday, and then it's nice that you said that. But we're going to continue living our lives on Monday through Saturday any other way that we want to. Like, he died for that. He knew that he would die for that so that people would be saved. Towards the end of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31, he says, The days are coming. And what he meant was the days are coming close. This Babylonian exile is on our heels, but also the return back home. That's going to come one day. And not only the return back home, but the return of the king. Like Christ is going to send, like God is going to send Christ the Messiah to save us, not just for now, but for once and for all. And then he says this, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. I didn't even have to try. Like the events of this week in our city have a whole new meaning when we read these scriptures. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they, they broke my covenant, though I was a, a husband to them, though I was committed to them. No, I never, never broke faith with them. Like It's going to be a whole different kind of covenant. And that's why when Jesus took the cup and when he took the bread and he celebrated Passover with his disciples, he wanted to make it very clear that in this moment, this was not the kind of Passover that you celebrated last year. This was not the kind of Passover that you celebrated all the other years. This is not the moment where you're invited to remember a day that you weren't there for anyway, way back in Egypt when our ancestors crossed over a Red Sea into safety because we smeared blood on our doorpost. He's like, I'm about to leave it all on the field and my blood's going to be on a cross. This is a new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of a lamb that your dad killed and spread on a door, but this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It wasn't poured out in the status of a king who came to town to rescue them in the moment. It was poured out like a servant who would suffer on a cross so that it could be granted for all time for 
anybody who would call on the name of the Lord. So it says in verse 31 of chapter 19, that was the day of preparation. This whole Passover celebration is like a week long. Cities are bustling with people and crowds are everywhere and the Roman government's still keeping all of their law and order in the community and the Jewish people are, are permitted to gather but they don't want to step outside the bounds of what Rome has allowed. And it, the next day was to be a special Sabbath. It says, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken. Like, like crucifixion could take days. And Jewish leaders didn't want all those bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, so they asked Pilate, like they've already asked Pilate to crucify King Jesus, and now they're coming like, by the way, can you also make it really quick so that the bodies come down before we have our Sabbath celebration? Like, go ahead and break the legs of the bodies so that they can be taken down, because the, the, the cruelty of crucifixion was, was not the pain of being nailed to it. The cruelty of crucifixion was being left there to suffocate because you couldn't breathe during it, and if it was going to take a whole other day, the Jewish people didn't want the stain and the stench of bodies on their special holy Sabbath day, so he needed to break the legs so the people would die quicker. Mercy. So it says the soldiers in verse 32, they, they, they came and they broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. I don't know if the first guy was the one that hurled insults or the, the second guy was the one who hurled insults. I don't know if the, the first guy was the one who said, hey, um, would you remember me today in paradise? I don't know if the second guy was the one who looked at him and said, hey, would you remember me today when you enter into your kingdom? But both of those guys got their legs broke that day. But when they came to Jesus, what did they find? That he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. And he knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies to you so that you may believe. Every single one of these words of the book, we'll talk about it next week, has happened so that we might be a people who believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones would be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one that they have pierced. And then in verse 38, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Everybody asking Pilate for something. It says, Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. We could pause on that word. We could talk for 25 minutes. We could talk for 25 years. We could talk for all the days of our lives about that word disciple and what it means to be a follower. It's not somebody who hears these words. It's not somebody who reads these words. It's not somebody who responds to these words with, you know, I hear what you're saying. I might call you Savior. I might identify you as King, but I'm still going to do my life any way that I want to according to the wickedness and the stubbornness of my own evil heart. I'll call you king on Sunday, but then live out ways and deeds that are a slap in your face on Monday. This man was a disciple of Jesus. He says, but secretly. John chapter 12, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier 
Go back to John chapter 3. He had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and the strips of linen. That was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because of it, the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I want this to be a place where we always, always, always say, it's okay to change your mind. Those reactionary thoughts that we're ready to blast anytime there's something that's disagreeable to us, it's okay to back off of that. Those, those declarations of, I know what's best, it's, it's right and it's okay to back off of that. I hear what you're saying, Lord, but I'm going to do my life any way that I want to according to the stubbornness and the wickedness of my own evil heart. It is right, and it's okay to back off of that. Any unbelief that we've brought to this book, any unbelief that we bring to that cross, it is, it is right, and it's, it's good to back off of that. Any shame or embarrassment that you felt for being a Christ follower, that, that it might cost you something, that you might be called out, that you might be identified, that you might be mistreated, that you might be disrespected, like it's okay to back off of that. At some point, we can choose to continue siding with our systems and with ourselves, or we can gather our spices. Either way, the tomb isn't final. There's a to be continued. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with someone in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.